previously on the Musician Toolkit. I'm going to make a statement right now, and uh, I would love for you to tell me why you agree or why you disagree. And that <laughs> is, I think that The Empire Strikes Back, that specific score is not only John Williams' greatest, most complete score, but I think it's the greatest film score of all time. Um, you know, I, I'm supposed to be a little bit guarded, you know, as an academic, right. a big, bold, objective sounding, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think I, I probably agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I really do. It's, it's almost irresistible. Um, you know, every time you study the score, you find something absolutely like just mind blowing. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking with another, uh, uh, film music analyst the other day and they, they were discovering all kinds of like 12 tone rows and buried Easter wow. eggs of compositional <laughs> mastery in there, but it, it's a magnificent score from start to finish. There are no dead spots, not a single one. There, there is compositional interest and dramatic interest at every moment. There's a really amazingly controlled arc to the score, um, where 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 themes you know are, are tentatively introduced and then are explored and then get this sort of blazing um, culmination right. at certain points. And yeah, and it just. It ends with a a, a bang, like <laughs> yeah. The, the the carbon freeze onwards is just wall to wall amazing scoring, yeah. just like the the Battle of Hoth is like from that point to the end of the asteroid fields. Like that's the single most impressive action oh, yeah. sequence scoring in all of Hollywood history. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode number 20 of the Musician Toolkit. I'm your host, David Lane, and it is great to be back with you once again. So if you're listening to this on the day that this episode comes out, may the 4th be with you. Happy Star Wars Day. I make no apologies that today's episode is a long one because it's a subject that I really love. But we're going to jump in just as soon as possible. I just want to give you a little bit of information before we begin. Today's guest is Dr. Frank Lehman. He is a film musicologist and music theorist. He's a professor at Tufts University, and he was my guest for episode eight. So you need to go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear all about John Williams, if you want to hear a little bit more about uh, Frank himself, and if you want to hear just uh, about some other scores that John Williams has done. We talked about Sabrina and we talked about the 1972 Robert Altman film Images. And the plan was for that one episode to also talk about The Empire Strikes Back. But when we got down to five minutes left in the interview, we, we realized how um, futile that was to even attempt such a thing. And given that this interview clocks in at nearly 98 minutes and that's after making a lot of cuts that uh some of which includes a generous amount of sound clips from what we're discussing i realize yes we need to do a follow-up episode and that was a very wise decision as you'll find out if you go to my blog at davidlanemusic.com blog and just scroll all the way to the bottom to find the earliest post, you'll find a series of what I think are the 100 greatest film scores of all time. And you will find three Star Wars soundtracks on that list. Not surprisingly, it's the all three of the original trilogy. Uh, where The placement and the order of two of them may surprise you, but those who've known me for a long time will find no surprise that The Empire Strikes Back ranks number one on my list, and it has for decades. 
Dr. Lehman is an expert on film music in terms of history uh, and also theory, and especially when it comes to the music of John Williams, and especially when it comes to the music of Star Wars. He has a comprehensive, still evolving catalog of all of the Star Wars themes in the Star Wars universe. And, uh, and he agrees with me that The Empire Strikes Back is the cream of the crop. And we're going to talk about it, all, all about the themes, the harmony, the orchestration. So in terms of, you know, this being the musician toolkit, we're not going to talk about the tools of a musician this time, but we're going to talk about the tools of this music. What makes The Empire Strikes Back a great score? Why do I call it the greatest film score of all time? Well, this is a bit of a journey, so if you like film music or if you've never really been exposed to film music before, strap in. This is going to be a fun conversation, so let's get to it. Here is my part two chat with Dr. Frank Lehman. All right, for the first time ever, we have a returning guest on the Musician Toolkit, so welcome back, Frank Lehman. Well, thank you very much for having me back. It's great to be here. I believe it was episode eight. We talked about John Williams, and uh, I have been pretty good over the years of judging the length of a conversation based on an outline. And I foolishly thought that, you know, in within an hour, we could talk about John Williams, you know, background and talk about three scores with one of them being star wars the empire strikes back may have been a tad ambitious yes amazingly we got through everything but the empire strikes back and uh that was a you you had a a hard out that interview you had to leave at a certain time and uh we had five minutes left and i'm like it'd be insulting to yeah right about that when I think of the three scores we talked, this is going to need the most amount of discussion. Mm-hmm. And as I played in a clip earlier, I think we we both agree, although, you know, from an academic's perspective, you know, maybe you can't put it in ink. But, you know, th- this is, if not the best score of all time, it's got to be one of the few that deserves discussion. Yeah, it's certainly a contender. Um, and it's in a very illustrious collection of incredibly fine contenders for best score by John Williams. Right. (laughs) The the fact that we're talking about it in particular, though, um, really goes to show just how special this score is, how amazingly well-crafted and it's, it's the high watermark of, of the star Wars um, nine movie series and the entire musical universe. And it's certainly a, one of the apexes of John Williams' long filmography. Yes. Now, um, a few few things to sit up before we start talking about the score itself. So, um, first of all, this if you're listening to this when it when it comes out, happy May Fourth, happy Star Wars Day. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> May the fourth. Uh, second, working. if you're not a diehard music uh, film score fan, you you kind of know the film scores and you you're a Star Wars fan in general, you might wonder why pick The Empire Strikes Back as kind of the score to talk about instead of the series as a whole, or even, you know, uh, as opposed to another film like, you know, A New Hope, the Star Wars, or, you know, why not uh, Attack of the Clones, or, you know, or, 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 I wonder. <laughs> and, and I will say up front that 
I won't I won't get into any opinions of what I think is the least score. I don't know that I have a strong opinion on that of the nine films, but um, the the least score of that nine film series is probably in the top 20 percent of film scores I've ever heard. <laughs> right. Yeah. John Williams uh, worst efforts are often superior to uh, other composers career bests. <laughs> He's he's kind of incapable of writing bad or ill-suited music for the film. He is capable of being on autopilot, though, but that, that certainly yeah. wasn't the case with episode uh, five. No. So let's talk about a little bit about Star Wars itself. So mm -hmm. um, he wrote this. He wrote that score in 1977. It was his first time with the London Symphony Orchestra. In fact, if you go look at my blog, you know, any listener who wants to check it out, davidlanemusic.com slash blog. If you scroll way to the bottom, you'll see a series that I have on my top 100 scores of all time. Mm -hmm. And I may I may be, according to some, blasphemously put Star Wars, the 1977 original, number 42. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right between Crawl by James Horner and Vice by Nicholas Bertel. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and I and I kind of say on there, you know, first of all, I'm trying to consider all the scores I love because I'm not one of those that. I mean, I, I, I'll come here and I'll tell you, I think John Williams is the best film composer of all time. But it doesn't mean that I think like the to my top 10 are, his, are all John Williams. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, I talked about, I don't think that he fully knew what he, what he had available with mm -hmm. London Symphony. It's like you can hear a difference in the technical virtuosity when mm -hmm. you, you know, compared to the later scores. I mean, even... Even Return of the Jedi, I think, has some more kind of pyrotechnics in the orchestra yeah, than yeah. even Empire Strikes Back, if you're just listening for that. You know, just mm -hmm. like, I mean, the brass must have had all kinds of scale practice. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, the, the brass writing gets more and more technically demanding as the as the series goes on, doesn't it? Right. And um, the other thing is, I think we need to spend some time on this because this is probably new for a lot of people, and that is the concept of temp track. Mm. So I can I can get us into this as a film composer who has worked with temp tracks before. So, if you're a film composer and you are working with a director, you might occasionally get a director that says, "You know, I don't really know what I want. It's up to you." And uh, that's happened maybe once with me. Mm -hmm. You sometimes get a director who can verbally articulate what they want. It's like, well, I kind of want this mood. And, a, you know, uh, they can even talk about a piece. Here's a piece, maybe go check out. And they might even send you a piece of music that they have in mind. But then I have a particular director I've worked with, and we have a great relationship, but he's a big fan of temp tracks. Mm. And the first cut I get of what he's working on will have like a Michael Giacchino cue or mm -hmm. a cue from a video game score. I, I won't say, I won't speak for him, but I know some directors would, if they could legally get away with it and it would, and they could edit it properly, they would just keep that cue in there. And your job is to kind of convince them why it's not the best solution. And some composers deal with that better than others. You know, that whole mm -hmm. dynamic. Um, probably the most famous example of, of someone who never really did it well was James Horner, you know, <laughs> great, talented film composer, but probably given about a third the time to do a film scores, John Williams and did just 
you know, it's like, oh, sounds like Prokofiev. We're going to make, we're going to just going to. Uh, I wonder for, for Horner in particular, how much was him emulating temp tracks that were given to him, like the Prokofiev or Kachaturian or yeah. any, you know, any one of the hundreds of classical pieces that he, uh, you know, channeled in his film scores and how much of that comes from his familiarity with, with those works and his, uh, um, uh, comfort in in modeling his own music with or without the recommendation to base a cue on right. it. Now I can I can only judge because I wasn't in the you know I've never been in the room, with him, but I can only judge from his interviews. You know that yeah. one where he he gave reference to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's something that all film composers have to learn to deal with, um, and some do it in more or less creative ways, and. Uh, we all enjoy a good sort of spot the reference, spot the temp track um, exercise. Even the best composers are susceptible to to temp track itis. Um, although I actually I think it's more of an issue for the the directors and and sound editors and the people that um, insist on a, a certain lack of originality and the composers right holds into the, the the people higher up on the the chain. So. I never really begrudge a composer if their music sounds like something that I've heard before. This doesn't right. say anything to their inherent creativity or originality. It's really you know, part of the part of the process, part of the bigger filmmaking, um, you know, the, the demands that are placed on mainstream movies. Yes. I mean, besides trying to cater to the expectations, you know, that uh, the director or producers have, you, you know, you also you don't have the time, you know, it's not like Brahms taking 14 years to get around to symphony number one. You've got to, <laughs> you've got to produce a similar yep, yep. amount of score and about maybe if you're lucky, six, and, eight weeks, you know, and, uh, you know, not so naturally you rely on things that were, have worked on the past. And, um, if, if the director or, you know, various other people involved in making the movie can give you good suggestions, what they're looking for emotionally or thematically, then that, that can be a great, uh, uh time saver. Um, and these things perpetuate themselves because what might have been temp tracked, uh, uh, inspired by a temp track, then itself can be a temp track in a future soundtrack and on and on it goes. And we have a lot of similarity and, and sameness in certain styles of film music. Um, but with, with Star Wars, that that's actually kind of a unique scenario, right? Um, yeah, I was, I was about to say just real quick, you know, I, I, I was going to say, we're talking about temp tracks. I bet it's been 45 years since john williams has had to <laughs> to do that i think if you hire john williams it's mm-hmm. like you, you know what my music sound like so you know what you're gonna get oh i don't i don't know uh okay <laughs> maybe maybe not with um uh, uh famous pre-existing classical music that he and uh and, and spielberg basically had to argue with lucas that the original star wars would have been ill-suited by Right. lucas was going for a 2001 stanley kubrick kind of compilation score and he had uh, uh, um, to be dissuaded from that by Williams, basically, who, who came on board at the the uh, uh, recommendation of their mutual friend and, and colleague, uh, Steven Spielberg. And Lucas was convinced by Williams that, that uh, an original score could better suit the needs of this movie and have adaptable themes and, and uh, uh, you know, mold itself to the unique to unique requirements of this particular screenplay in a way that just plopping down, uh, you know, an excerpt from Holst Mars or the Rite of Spring simply would not have. Um, that's the, sto- that's the story as it's been told. I mean, I'm sure that there's, it's more complex if we actually go back and figure it out exactly what the temp track was and exactly how Williams was 
right. uh, uh, brought on board. And I think to uh, more recently, Lucas has has denied that he initially wanted a classical music soundtrack, and he said that it was always going to be Williams all along. But I, I think that that might have that might be him remembering or mischaracterizing <laughs> the, the process. Yeah I, yeah, I I don't think I would be inclined to agree with that. I would I would agree with you that it's probably more complex. And yeah. we've been told. there there is a pretty good again I don't know I don't know how factual it is, but there's a pretty good podcast representation of this that's uh, like reenactment, and it was a series called Blockbuster. <laughs> um, it's it's by one of the producers of uh, Score of the podcast or something. Like it's oh, oh, yeah. Score of the documentary or Score of the podcast. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. It's, it's by one one of those guys that and it has two seasons. The second one's about James Cameron and James Horner, hmm. kind of their combination. It's, it's very, very interesting, you know, and it's reenactment, sound effects, at voice actors and all that. But, um, you know, it's it's pretty good. But you can almost spot all you spot all these references if you listen to Star Wars, hmm. if you're familiar with classical music and your classical music elitists out there who don't. Hmm who who don't acknowledge film composers as being real composers that this is almost one of their token scores to bring up it's like yeah. obviously there's the you know the rebel fanfare has some similarities to mars um, right well the, you know uh, one 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 day it's mars the other day it's the sorcerer's apprentice right. there are mil- millions of pieces that one can speculate um we know for a fact uh certain pieces that were temp tracked either because uh, there's documentation, you know, in like the making of the Star Wars book by I think it's Jeremy Rinsler or Paul Hirsch, the editor, has confirmed usage of Rite of Spring or uh, uh, the planets in various places. There are also um, uh, claims about pieces that I simply don't hear referenced. Like they said that Bruckner 9 was used as a uh, model for the main title, which I find to be hard to believe. I don't hear any Bruckner in the original Star Wars score. I mean, maybe it was the case that Williams decided not to. Uh, to channel that particular composition, the classical elitism elitism thing uh, sometimes comes to the right conclusions, but based on the wrong motivation. Right? They want to put down Williams or the art of film composition. They don't understand or are unfamiliar with the fact that things are temp tracked, and that Williams was doing this incredibly deliberately in, in the first movie, at least. Now, the most persuasive example might be the main title from the movie King's Row by right. Wolfgang Korngold. the one they always like to, to pull out <laughs> but but the, here's the here's the thing with that particular example right okay you have an ascending perfect fifth fourth and a little descent it it sounds like corn gold for three notes uh, uh and i'm sure that williams deliberately did that. i mean he said that he was trying to you know uh, uh evoke that old-fashioned uh heroic sound from that era of filmmaking but it's that's actually a much more superficial resemblance than the main title's real inspiration, which I think is Miklos Rose's Ivanhoe. Which is formally and orchestrationally um, and harmonically, in terms of the sort of chordal orientation of the theme, much more of a 
close fit for Williams. And I think that that has been confirmed or at least strongly suggested as a hemp track model. So actually, I don't think that Williams was deliberately lifting to put it in a sort of negative way from Korngold at all. If anything, it was from Miklos Rosa, who's a a composer that uh, because he's maybe a little bit less familiar um, and the, the resemblance is a little bit less instantaneously obvious that people don't, don't make that comparison. Um, so that gets at the kind of, uh, you know, the, the <laughs> I'm, I'm at risk on going on a hobby horse here, but the sort of low level analysis that goes into a lot of the comparative gotcha, this is the temp track, this is Williams being a plagiarist kind of thing, or paraphr- paraphraser. Um, you really need to to keep, take into account all of the references that, that may have been pouring into this music and the fact that it's supposed to be extremely referential and extremely... Uh, um, uh, aware of a kind of musical past um, while still being original on a sort of measure to measure level. And the, and the, and the, the new hope score is, you know, in, in general, I mean, there certainly are passages that w- are unmistakably inspired by Walton or Stravinsky or, or, or whoever, but the, the overall score, you know, like pick a random four measures is actually probably not going to be referencing anything specific and most of it is just Williams doing Williams rather than Williams doing Holst or Williams doing Elgar or Williams doing Strauss or Rimsky Korsakoff or any, you know, any of the innumerable uh, figures that, that inform that score. Well, you know, in 2023, I mean, just this, the morning before we interviewed and, and, you know, for, for reference, we, we started talking at 10 o'clock. I had already seen two announcements, you know, on social media, of upcoming star wars yeah. <laughs> movies you know that that's going to be on disney plus so it's probably mm-hmm. hard for today's fan to remember or even believe mm-hmm. this but for about a year after the release you know for or i should say at the time of the 1977 release till maybe a year later this was not part of a series this was mm-hmm. a kind of an homage to Saturday morning serials and right. uh, you know like Flash Gordon that type of thing and you didn't even see a new hope in mm-hmm. the scroll it's like it just a, Star a standalone Wars. film and yeah. then <laughs> the uh overwhelming surprisingly overwhelming success of the film you know I'm sure Lucas is like we got to have a sequel but does it have to be part two or could we have been in the middle of something and mm-hmm. i think that's a brilliant choice i yeah, really can argue how he handled the prequel quilt <laughs> but but uh, but it gave him a really creative option and that got us to uh the empire strikes back so uh i, I know we could go on and on about like some of the, the ways star wars is put together but i in summary for me that was John Williams did a fantastic job and, and absolutely even over close encounters of the third kind, I think he deserved best original score for that film. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's an astounding film and my, you know, my 42, I always have to put in there, keep it, keep in mind. I love all these scores. So 40 is 42 is fun. But if you keep on going, where will you find the empire strikes back? You will find it. Number one beginning <laughs> yep, yep. list so i'm going to read what i wrote and we'll kind of get us into this so this is um f- directly from my blog um and this was written in 2020 um so i guess i could <clears throat> i could add three years to this number so so updated would say during the 33 years 
of keeping this at the top of my list. And, and that's not how old the movie is. That's how long since I got the soundtrack. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I occasionally wonder if I'm just holding on to nostalgia, if it's really not as good as I think. So then I have to listen to the music once again. And mm-hmm. once again, I affirm, no, I'm not wrong. Nope. This really is the greatest film score of all time. Yeah. It's also, we'll go ahead and get into this rant I talked about before we record it. It's also the biggest Oscar mistake in original score history. Um, the the no. lead <laughs> score for fame by Michael Gore won the best score over this. And 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 now if you tell me that it's you know, well, it had a great song. Well, there was a song category. <laughs> it's, yeah. But uh and I don't think I put it in here in the blog, but I'll just dissect. Here are the other nominees that year. If you say, well, he won it for Star Wars. We can't give it to him for The Empire Strikes Back. Okay. Well, how about Altered States by John Corleano? <laughs> how about The Elephant Man by John Morris, which is, you know, a standout score in an underrated career. And, uh, you know, as a dark horse, you have Tess by Philippe Sard. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> you, you know what it's like you we you kind of grow um to have very little faith in the ability of the academy awards to award the actual best um in any given category and i've been uh hardened uh, for year after year of seeing what i thought were superior scores being uh neglected in favor of things that are maybe more flavor of the month uh or 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 has no clothes kind of situations in some rare cases uh and so i don't know if that's a uniquely um a unique travesty of a score not being awarded one but certainly uh the contrast in quality and importance and longevity and musicality between the actual award winner that year and all of the other options and and you're you're right to mention the Crigliano Altered States, which is, you know, a, a masterwork in a lot of ways. And have an influential score, too. It's like yeah, the right. way that he uses the horns kind of above their natural range. All right. It's uh, here again until Aliens with James Horner again. No, it's it's, it's a fa- fascinating score that has, you know, the, the most wild um, uh, disparity between the kind of lyrical, I think it's a love theme, and the the utter avant-garde chaos of, of the dream sequences and you know, primal reversions and all that. So it's a wonderful, wonderful score. And I'm glad that he did eventually win an Oscar. I, I want to say for the red violin in the nineties, um, uh, very limited output, you know, of course, but he, he is a fantastic film composer, Clergulano. Um, one of the criticisms I noted on my blog post um, that I think people might ca- casually observe is they might say, well, John Williams shouldn't win the Oscar for this because he's recycling material from the original for which he did win an award. And as I think we're going to discuss, that is not at all true. So <laughs> we talked about the classical temp tracks and, you know, you know, however, how much he did or not, you can hear, you know, a lot of similarities to an extent in 1977 that you don't hear in mm-hmm. 1980. It's like, yeah. it's almost like for the, he took the 1977 score and says, here are the best bits I'm mm-hmm. going to keep. And now we're going to redo everything else. It's like, Probably a lot of people forget, but the original Darth Vader theme was a little unremarkable.
Right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I know that people like are, are, are upset sometimes that there's a certain lack of motivic consistency across all of the nine Star Wars movies, that certain themes are developed and then are cast by the wayside. I don't have a problem with that in this particular case of the imperial motif from A New Hope, which is, you know, serviceable. It's it's a good little, you know, octatonic slash Phrygian idea in that context, and it serves its purpose for a fairly um, mysterious or undefined uh, antagonist. But in Empire Strikes Back, he's the big bad, and he gets what may well be the greatest villain theme in movies of all time. And why would you why would you need to preserve the the short little motto from A New Hope when you now have this incredible march um, that's that's memorable and uh, lengthy and easy to manipulate and transform and Williams was clearly pleased with it too because it gets a lot of airings in that score. At some point, I counted, and it by far is the, the the dominant leitmotif in *Empire Strikes Back* in terms of sheer number of iterations, and it may be the most leitmotifs of a single uh, instances of a single leitmotif in a single score of all of the movies that he wrote. It absolutely dominates the the, the soundtrack. Now, uh, this is one of the the three big new themes, and so before we, you know, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Talk us a little mm-hmm. about about the harmony for that theme. He uses very interesting choices. Yeah, well, so Darth Vader slash the Imperial March um, is a minor theme, which is not unexpected for villain themes. It's a rare thing to see something that is in a major mode, um, unless you're trying to deceive the audience somehow. But it's not a straightforwardly diatonic um thematic in, in terms of harmonization or the melody um and the the progression that kind of undergirds it that makes it really um stand out is uh, i guess you could say a, a tonic to minor flattened submediant relationship or on the piano it's like g minor to e flat minor yeah back to g minor and this is it certainly is not the the invention of John Williams to associate that particular progression with villainy or evil. Um, it goes at least as far back as the 19th century in Wagner with the, the ring cycle. Um, yeah. And there, there are pl- plenty of subsequent examples that that uh, similarly trade in that kind of dark, chromatic, um, uh, slightly functionally ambiguous oscillation of two triads that way. But the 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 trope maker right the thing that really solidifies it at least in the contemporary ear i think is the darth vader motif um and it isn't the only interesting harmonic detail in that theme i mean you also have uh, in the second phrase uh, a tritonal relationship too where g minor goes to depending on how you want to consider things either c sharp minor or d flat minor i think of it as d flat minor as sort of a, a minor flattened subdominant in the same way that the uh, the E flat is a minor flattened um, dominant in kind of functional perverse way. Um, but in, regardless of the, these these harmonic complexities and, and they also do impact the melody, it's still very easily um, uh, uh, sung. You know, if you're trying to sort of whistle a theme or sing a theme after leaving the theater, it's an earworm. It's, it's not hard to uh, learn and, and have unable to 
to leave your ear. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a marvel. Um, it's a wonderful little theme. And Williams is clearly uh, fond of it too, because well, he uses it. And again, he transforms it and he manipulates it in all sorts of interesting ways. Uh, I guess the next theme that I'll mention the, of the big ones, um, you know, m- maybe not as prominent in in the film, but it's Yoda's theme, yeah. uh, which is, uh, you know, my my <laughs> one thing. It's good to know this theme so that you'll recognize it when mm-hmm. you watch ET, because right, he, right, he uses it when uh, on the Halloween scene when there's Yoda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, which is a funny kind of what the implication exactly is that Yoda exists in the ET universe as a reference to the film but in star wars in the phantom menace there's this little easter egg of et's in the senate uh so apparently that et is also in the 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 in universe in star wars um right well i think williams has said on occasion that yoda's theme is one of his personal favorites too and he uh, well, in Empire Strikes Back, he does write some some big versions of the theme, right? The lifting of the X wing um, sequence is definitely the thematic um, climax or apotheosis of that that light motif, which is then recycled um, note for note, essentially in Rise of Skywalker. But the um, the majority of uses of that light motif are more subtle, um, which befits the the character of the theme and the character of the character too, as a kind of um, benevolent and for, for star wars kind of small scale character at least in terms of his, his size but he he williams is is clearly fond of the theme and the character too and he you know wrote, wrote just like the empire imperial march he wrote uh, an extended concert arrangement um and revisited the theme too when he did all those arrangements for anna sophie mooder where now we have a violin um instance of the yoda's theme And it pops up here and there in the subsequent movies too, you know, most notably while Yoda is um, dying actually in Return of the Jedi, it gets gets some really fantastic uh, thematic development in that case. comes up sporadically in the prequels and also you know in in um uh the last jedi when yoda's force ghost appears and another you know, like i said in, in, inexplicable but somehow still emotionally appropriate usage in rise of skywalker i think that's williams just saying you know let's give this theme one one last hurrah one last world because uh he he was proud of its construction and he thinks that it, it matches the affect that was needed for the end of the ninth movie right at least on the CD soundtrack, or at least the the version that I have, it was like the nineteen ninety seven release. Mm-hmm. I think Yoda's theme is most magnificently presented in what's uh, on the track that's called Yoda and the Force. Right, it levitates the ship out of right. The that's that's the the X wing sequence. Um, yeah, and and that, well, that's one really uh, I think important aspect of this score. Uh, generally speaking, is that all of the new themes get some kind of 
big triumphant foregrounded sort of uh, culmination. Uh, uh, the the Yoda in the fourth track is certainly the example of that for Yoda's theme. I mean, it's it's uh, a moment in the movie that is wondrous, and the music takes the front seat in a way. Right, we have this amazing visual of the X-wing being lifted out of the swamp, but the sound effects you you notice after um, the X-wing first begins to emerge really recede, and it just becomes pure you know, sort of musical poetry at that point. Um, the the score is absolutely at the forefront and we get this blazing triumphant chromatically modulating version of Yoda's theme that ends with a big fanfare. Um, it's Williams being allowed to really uh, take charge. The, the The music is operating on a, a truly symphonic or even operatic level in that sequence. And it's um, for that reason, you know, one of the, the most uh, uh, memorable set pieces in the movie. It's, it's, I don't think it would work at all without the, the music. Uh, you know the that that theme, of course, it starts with a descending perfect fifth, and then an ascending major sixth. Mm -hmm. And the perfect fourth, perfect fifth, and the major sixth. It seems like those. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but those are like the most common intervals he uses in this era of his yeah. career. You know, for especially for heroic themes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he he always uses um, very recognizable opening intervals for for themes, and that, that's a very clever thing to do as a film composer to immediately hook the listener with some kind of recognizable um oftentimes on a sort of a pickup figure you know not with yoda's theme which really does begin on the downbeat but having that you know a strong and uniquely identifying um intervallic pattern first three or four notes and i mean we know because the way that these scores are are written that leitmotifs aren't always presented in their entirety right you know, for, for various reasons that it's, it's shrewd to have something that can get its job done and make that signification within just a, a pair of, of pitches. Same is true for the Imperial March, which, you know, is um, kind of determined because uh, determined by the repetition of its initial node, um, that threefold, da, 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 yum, -da that's enough, right? All, all you need, you don't even need the, the, um, the note after those three notes, just, um, bum, bum, that's sufficient to, cue the listener in and it's the same thing for yoda um, and it's the same thing for han solo and the princess the han and leia love theme with the one caveat that that has the same opening interval that's a, a, a um, major ascending major six that leia's theme does at least in certain presentations so um it may not be as unique at least with the first interval but afterwards it goes on and does its own thing and has a kind of characteristic harmonic so that that brings us that's the third major theme Han right. Solo princess and uh i think it's my favorite of the new things i mean mm -hmm. obviously i love all the others but uh that's one especially the way he uses it uh, i mean just about all the time but you know mm -hmm. we're going to talk about you know the landis palace the carbon freeze and all that but mm -hmm. the the way he uses it with you know at that at that moment is just absolutely amazing and a
and there's several other places where he uses it, but that is, I think, of all the love themes, that's my favorite. There's something really special about it, and and I I, I think it has a lot to do with the way that it's used across the movie too. Um, the the point of comparison with Leia's theme from from uh, Episode Four or just Star Wars, if we're being historically accurate, right? I mean, it's a, a mini- Leia's theme is a mini- magnificent too, and has an amazing um, concert arrangement. But it's not used in the same sort of pervasive way in that movie or any subsequent movie as Han Solo and the princess is in Empire Strikes Back. It gets a real workout there and it's subject to all kinds of transformations and subtle um, uh, sort of over overlays with other themes. And it goes through an emotional arc of its own so that you do have these incredible climaxes such as the carbon freeze scene which again like that yoda lifting the the x-wing is really operatic in its conception the way that that music just completely takes center stage and you get you know um this blazing loud and very dramatic melodramatic even statements of of that theme and it continues to to be foregrounded after the carbon uh, free sequence maybe not quite in the same overwhelming way but uh during the rescue uh, or attempted rescue of han and carbonite and then then the escaping bespin like it, it it gets some amazing treatments uh if, if you can sort of hear past the blaster fire in some of those sequences it's um, yeah. incredibly intricately orchestrated beautiful, melancholic, um, very old-fashioned love theme that that Williams obviously relished. Um, well, he relished. It's, it's interesting. How does this film end going into the credits? It mm-hmm. ends with a glorious statement of that theme. And why? It's because they've said, what's our mission? We got to go rescue yeah. Solo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's hard to pick one Star Wars film that has the best ending in terms of the, the musical uh, um, transition into the end credits, but I think it has to be Empire, right? The the way that you, you have the first that uh, after the tracked bit from Dagobah, the uh, uh, solemn force theme that then kind of gets majorized, yeah. then a uh, uh, bit of more subtle underscore when they're uh, testing out Luke's new hand, right. and then uh, a surging statement of the Han Solo and uh, Princess Leia love theme in a, uh, a a duration that had not been heard yet in that movie. It's actually the most full um, span of the theme and includes kind of a bit of its B section, which we don't hear otherwise. at during the 
the, the kiss in the Millennium Falcon, but you get the most full statement there. And it, it, I mean, it feels like this is a big grand finale on the most lyrical and beautiful and sort of hopeful theme. And well, not hopeful. Yoda is probably the most hopeful theme, but kind of a, a emotionally involving of the new light motifs. Yeah. And it transitions wonderfully to uh, a newly transposed version of the end credits theme. It's the first and only one really that does that. And then you get it again after, you know, this magnificent end credits suite that goes from Yoda to Empire or Imperial March to the Han Solo and the Princess theme. And there again, I mean, you have even more sort of lush, complete and um, uh, fully realized version of the theme. It's, uh, it's like nothing else. So uh, what what are some of the other kind of not as major themes that were written mm-hmm. for Empire? Well, there's a whole whole suite of them that range from uh, pretty uh, iconic to barely noticeable unless you're <laughs> right. really uh, you know meticulously going through these scores looking for motivic cross references. Um, the next biggest one, I think, would be the droids theme. And this is, like we mentioned, the Imperial theme from episode four, kind of going by the wayside. This one is a one score wonder. Um, it's a great little theme. Um, it, ca- it captures R2 and D- uh, R2D2 and C3PO's character very well. Um, and it has its own s- smaller scale musical arc in the, the film and some really big versions. And it has a kind of emotional. Um, versatility that you might not expect from uh, a move, uh, a theme that's at its basis kind of comedic. Kind of has a slightly Prokofiev, yeah, um, uh, wrong note kind of chromaticism to it and playfulness, but it's capable of, of really urgent drama and even pathos. Like there's music during the initial scenes in Hoth when Luke has gone missing, where the the droids are worrying about him, and you get this sort of sad, tragic version of the the droids motif. It's wonderful. Williams does not return to it. He forgot that he wrote it, I assume, or Lucas forgot and Williams didn't care to remind him for Return of the Jedi. Um, it's 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 gone, uh, which is a, frankly a bit of a shame because there's no theme that picks up the slack in the same way that the Imperial March does for Vader and the Imperials in, in episode five. And I, I hate to derail us, but, you know, it, it was my fault that we didn't mention earlier that we should probably just, you know, just mention the themes that returned from oh, right, right. so obviously the the main title theme which what how do you refer to it? you call that luke's theme 
Uh, I, I call it main slash Luke's theme. I think that's that's in accordance with what Williams himself considers his, his role. So then I guess it would be the Force theme, which mm-hmm. is the... This little... Uh... Forgettable bit of music. Right now, that's that's these. It basically assumes the role of Star Wars theme, even above the uh, main theme in terms of its iconicity and the number of iterations far more prevalent than the main or slash Luke's theme in almost all of the Star Wars movies and Williams uses it almost to excess in some cases although uh, in its best forms it's it's probably the best Star Wars theme at least in my opinion it's it's magnificent right so and that, then, that recurs uh, in a big way for sure and then it seems like all over the the original trilogy is the uh I believe you call it the rebel, the rebel fanfare theme. Right. Williams himself called it the rebel fanfare in discussing um, the, uh, the, the first couple of movies. It has morphed over time um, to have a bit more of a flexible kind of connotation for just heroics. And by the time that we reach the sequel trilogy, it actually serves more as a theme for the Millennium Falcon than anything else. And that's how it's referred to in cue sheets. But it's the rebel fanfare. It's the 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 brief, plucky, bright, chromatic theme for the rebellion. Now, of the major material, that's that's it, right? I don't know that there well, were any... Le- Leia's theme um, pops up here and there, but much, much more uh, uh, restrained and taking a backseat to the new Han and Leia theme. Yeah, um, but yeah, that that's that's correct. So it's the main theme, force theme, rebel fanfare, and Leia. So of the minor themes, and I want to I want to hold off on the ones that are one off, but like the ones that have <laughs> occurring, Lando has some. Mm-hmm. Lando has a nice little theme. It actually only p- uh, pops in at three times, um, right. all told, in three separate cues and three separate er- arrangements. But it's a, um, a a sort of stately, noble. Um, self-assured theme that that indulges in William's favorite uh, British composer of William Walton. The, the harmonization is very much in keeping with the kind of ceremonial music that, that William's admired so much out of Great Britain. And it, I mean, it matches matches the setting really well. This is sort of this beautiful, opulent um, city in the clouds. That uh, yeah. Uh, well, as, as soon as the the, um, the the betrayal happens on Bespin, that theme basically goes away. There's one little statement afterwards when Lando is being heroic after having betrayed them, where it, it's revived. But it's pretty much the facade for Cloud City rather than the the actual trap that's been laid for them. Right. Are are there any other themes that that happen more than once that 
Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's there's Boba Fett, um, who has <laughs> this uh, deep, growling little uh, bassoon low theme, which it, again, it's it's very uh, I don't want to say underutilized. It's used exactly as many times as it needs to be, but there are three three cues in which it's is present. Right. Um, and it's, you know, there, there are elements of it that are then transplanted into more one-off thematic materials, um, particularly after the, the carbon freeze sequence. We get some sort of hybrid uh, um, materials that are part Boba Fett, part Imperial March, this kind of... Um, Yeah, so there's Boba Fett, and then there's there's a very easily missed, but actually kind of significant um, intervallic theme for I don't know I, I following some other you know, uh, Star Wars theme catalogers called the dark side motif. It's essentially just a rising mm-hmm. and falling major second um, in a minor context, but it it pops up with surprising frequency. It really does have a motivic. Um, or, or leitmotivic significance to it. It's associated with um, the sort of danger, associ- uh, danger of Darth Vader uh, uh, and the, the dark side in general, the plan to convert Luke Skywalker over to the side of the Empire. It makes its first really clear appearance in the, in the uh, magical cave. And he uses that same thing in in the heroic way on and what we mentioned Yoda and the Force when the ship comes out of the water with the breath. Exactly right. That's that's the little fanfare that it, that concludes that passage. Which interestingly was for a, a brief moment the the um, Lucasfilm logo music like in 2015 or so oh, they, had, they had that cadence and it was also the cadence that concluded I think the second second or third trailer for The Force Awakens um, which Williams was involved in in some of the trailer composition for those movies so that has a bit of an afterlife too right all right one off themes I I have to just get this out of my way it's um. Mm-hmm. It was very validating to me because I came to this conclusion on my own. Mm-hmm. I found that it is a common opinion that the asteroid field is one of the the like if you have to if someone asks why do you love this film score and mm-hmm. you have to explain it in one track. <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> okay, yep. go listen to this. It has a theme in it that he uses for that cue, and he uses it a couple times, and then that's it. I don't think he ever uses it again in the series. That's it. And yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it is. It's a, a <laughs> sort of staggering. How, how did he come up with this? Um... Yeah. 
Well, the whole the whole queue, uh, uh, and, and and I'm I'm talking about when they enter the asteroid field. The the lead up, which has some you know all time great statements of the Imperial March, is also fantastic. But it's the the main set piece that that I agree with you. I mean, how, how can you possibly come up with a better action sequence, action queue? Um, and part of that has to do with its its breathtaking uh, difficulty uh, for for the orchestra and the. the the, the pace with which things change and passage work happens, but it's really that big theme. So there's a couple of motivic aspects of that. There's a sort of yeah. If you're a piccolo player, you get a workout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a, like four piccolos in that sequence. Somewhere in Empire Strikes Back, there's like an entire battery of piccolos. It's, it's absurd. Um, the 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 main theme uh, within that that sequence. It is it is the definition of a one cue wonder. It doesn't show up anywhere else, and you gotta wonder. Like Williams, he must have known that he had a a winner on his hands, but he, uh, I would love to know reduced, why he never used. Yeah, it never goes back to it. Uh, and it's not like he forgot about it either, because he wrote a pretty phenomenal concert arrangement that that uh, uh, um, channels a lot of that virtuosity and, and it's mostly music that was in the movie but there are some transformations there too um I, I I've gotten my own um uh use out of the queue I wrote an article basically that was um the justification was a chance to really deeply analyze the asteroid field and that theme in particular I and mean, there's so much that can be said about its harmonic um yeah. construction. I wonder- you know, so, so much of what John Williams likes to do is to manipulate his themes. And mm-hmm. something like the Imperial March is actually, you know, I can say this as a composer, that would actually very be be very easy to manipulate because mm-hmm. the material is so simple. But this ast- but the asteroid field theme that we're talking about is so a kind of complete. Yeah. He, maybe he thought hey, this would be difficult to maneuver, you know, to manipulate. Yeah, I, I I think that he would have been capable of it, but I I suppose that might have been his thought process. Um, it also may have been the case that he wrote that. I don't know exactly what the the schedule is in in uh, which cue was written written when, um, but the, it's not the only uh, set piece in the Empire Strikes Back that has an incredible theme that doesn't appear anywhere else in any of his scores. Um, John yeah. Powell did revive it in solo for the Kessel Run, which makes perfect sense um mostly unaltered too that there you know it's sort of a, a mashup with a bunch of other themes from from star wars and the uh reminiscence therapy sequence in solo which is you know, wonderful and it's wonderful to hear it too but it doesn't change the fact that it's it was a one-off and that's that's how it's basically remained to this day it's, it's really not a leitmotif the other notable one one-off uh is probably to me uh would it be the like entering cloud city the chorus yeah, yeah. It, which... it, I wonder if it, is that his homage to uh, the Emerald City? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's an homage to something. I think most uh, 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 the, the connections I've heard most frequently is to the the main theme from the first movement of Sibelius's violin concerto. And I think it's probably intentional there. There is a yeah. unmistakable of 
kind of melodic turn that that's shared there. But it actually, it, it it's it's again a pretty superficial similarity once you get past the initial shared four or five notes. I mean, harmonically, it's really quite sophisticated too. That's the theme that I, I in my catalog, I had to choose one theme per movie to use as an exemplar of a set piece theme that doesn't appear anywhere else besides the the single cue in which it's written. So I I chose the uh, arrival at Cloud City and there's no shortage of choices in the Empire Strikes Back score. I mean, it could have done the asteroid field, could have done the um, this is no cave, you know, that doesn't appear anywhere else. But the Cloud City one, that that felt more like a you know just a, a, a moment of of um, musical flight, uh, if you want that that comes and goes. It doesn't really have any thematic ties to anything else in the movie, and um, it's just there to savor and then move on to other things. Right. So you know, I want to talk about a few set pieces. So I think we need to let's do a little transition. We need to talk about the London Symphony Orchestra during this time. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Andre Previn was the music director, and uh, you know, I when when I hear him conduct classical works during this era with the London Symphony, you can tell. Um, and I, I don't know how much he can take credit for it, uh, but the personnel was just outstanding. I mean, yeah. it, I mean, some of it's the sound engineering, but like if you listen to the French horns at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And compare it to, say, the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's almost like, I don't know, professional and a college player. <laughs> I, and, well, and I mean, those, those, those players in a Hollywood studio orchestra are no slouches either. But you're right. It's hard to hard to beat the LSO. But but that's just, you know, it, they were in their prime. But I think Andre Previn, what he can get credit for was he wanted the London Symphony to be a presence, to, to be an alternative to Hollywood for yeah. doing films, for film scores, especially if the films were were not shot in America, which Star Wars, right. in right. Europe, you know, and uh, and of course. You know, the, the kind of, this could become a long story, but John Williams knew Andre Previn mm-hmm. from previous collaborations. You know, in in film work. So this what Star Wars was John Williams' first time, to my knowledge, working directly, writing and conducting the London Symphony Orchestra, and and I kind of theorize didn't really know what they could do. <laughs> But he did, you know, you you hear that he did know when he came back for Superman. And I think he, I I don't know if he used him for the Fury. I know he used him for Dracula. Yeah, Dracula. But then then you get to the Empire Strikes Back and you could tell he was ready to test them. (laughs) Yes. So every section is test to the max. And I think they, they pass with flying colors. Like I, I, I. I've never scrutinized it. I sometimes I've heard wrong notes like in Kroll, James Horner uses London Symphony, you hear the brass crack a note in the main yeah. title. But I, think I, I don't hear that in Empire. There's there's 
I mean, it's, it seems weird to fixate on the one issue I have with it, but I think at the very end of the Minoc cave sequence with those brutally fast uh, horn, there's, you know, there's a slight imprecision there. Uh, it's it's right. just, it's, it's impossible music. I mean, it's not impossible music. They, right. they, they play it, um, uh, but it's uh, otherwise flawless and... Uh, impossibly virtuosic. I mean, the, the score that Williams wrote for the original Star Wars, I mean, has, has more than its share of, of technical flourishes, too. I mean, the very first th thing that happens is this, you know, blazing, complex little brass polyphony that... that uh, and has a theme for the trumpet that Williams was amazed by how well they, they were able to pull off. Um, and I can't remember the name of the, the horn player, but he basically wrote the concert arrangement for Princess Leia's theme after being so impressed by the, the, um, the performance of, of the hornist and that, that score. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the, 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 the bar is raised so much higher in Empire Strikes Back and the, the degree of sustained virtuosity is also marvelous when I mean, we forget these days because so much um sort of post digital filmmaking the the spans of underscore tend to be shorter and sort of chained together in right the spans of you know one two minutes at, at the most but here with empire strikes back i mean these cues of course they're probably multiple takes you know being uh, spliced yeah. on top of each other and things like that but like even the fact that the 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 battle of hoth is composed out of five separate cues slates um each one of those individual ones is still you know a good three or so minutes of just unrelentingly complicated and fast changing and and uh, performatively demanding music it's and uh, this is if i you know if i have to say why is empire strikes back number one as opposed to say number five or number six or somewhere like that mm -hmm. I think the tiebreaker for me and all other scores I've ever heard are the two big set pieces and what mm -hmm. the, the two flawless long set pieces. So you just mentioned the first one, Battle of Hoth. You know, what are what are some of the key moments? What are things that stick out to you and you hear it like as far as <laughs> either orchestration or harmonies, yeah. you know, just things that just wow, that jumps yeah. out. Yeah. Well, it, this score is so bottomless that it's it's Every single time you return to it, and it doesn't matter how much detail you've gone into studying its its, its complexities and marvels, you, you hear something new every time, and that's certainly the case with the the Battle of Hoth. Um, I attempted a inventory of the various uh, motivic. Uh, components of that that sequence and the, the five cues that go into it you know and like i think i i made it up to 26 you know one for every letter of the alphabet of of non-leitmotivic aspects of that that sequence that are remarkable or worth pointing out in some way um it's actually more <laughs> but i thought that it would be nice to keep it to you know from a to z but each each and each stage of the the sequence is uh, unique in in some fashion, right? It's not just the same kind of music throughout. So the first the first two cues I would actually probably pair. Um, that's that's how it's done on the the uh, the RCA soundtrack album too. And it's kind of introductory, um, features the imperial march in you know, very brutal ways, but also includes some 
kind of martial themes for the good guys that are both stirring and hopeful. You have that... Um, which is wonderfully sort of spun out of material that, that comes out of the Imperial March, actually, just a, a few moments earlier in the queue. Right. Um, and then there's that another nice Waltonian sort of hopeful theme as uh, Luke and I think his name is Dak take off in their their um, snow speeder. Variation of the main theme. Yeah, yeah, it's very closely related. Um, and then in the movie, the the soundtrack goes silent for. A short while um as the rebels are, are glimpsing the the uh, at 80s approaching but williams wrote it as a continuously scored um so you get that introduction to the next big chunk of the the uh the sequence which is the the, the battle against the walkers right and that has that you know enormously low and threatening base ostinato mechanical uh, and uh, unstoppable kind of uh, brutalist music that is just uh, incredibly dissonant. The whole thing is non-thematic too, right? And all the stuff that that is within that span as they're trying to take on the AT-ATs. has a bit of a Bartokian uh, kind of energy to it i think yeah it's it's uh you know it's very rhythmically um uh, harsh and uh full of percussive um like the, the variety too is probably the single most um percussion forward cue in that score and maybe the most in any of the star wars scores possibly with the exception of the the chase through coruscant in um episode is two maybe the most different style is it maybe the most prominent use of the piano I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, certainly within an action sequence, um, because that that it may be more than one piano too. I'm not exactly sure, but it sounds like it could have been doubled. You know, just to get that massive sound, much much more um, atonal uh, than the rest of the sequence. I mean, okay, atonal it depends on who you're asking. What that means, um, it's certainly dissonant and it's not functionally tonal and. Uh, um, leads to a, a gigantic kind of brass climax. All of this is unique to that cue too. I mean, it's remarkable. Again, Williams has uh, sque squeezes uh, enough motivic and and uh, rhythmic and gestural variety into the span of two and a half minutes or so that that could easily have supplied an entire score's worth of action music. But after that point, it's all done. He's, you know, besides a few very generic similarities with the kind of bum 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 bum, the, the low tuba and and double bass music for the walkers. It's all it's all a one off. Um, and he moves on to the next section, um, 
which is uh, considerably more thematic, you know, leitmotivically referential um, when the focus kind of goes on to uh, rather than the, the the battle in general onto the individual characters, Han, Leia, 3PO and Luke. Um, so Luke's first crash, I, I think is the name of the, the track. Um, we get a big bright statement of the um, rebel fanfare when he blows up the, the, the Walker preceded by a very pained, tragic sound of the, of the, force theme as the rebels seem to be in retreat. Gleefully evil version of the Empire, the Imperial March closes that out as um, the, the General Veers, I want to say, blows up the shield generator. And it's all just marvelous and kind of a, a little bit more approachable because of the the reference to big light motifs in that one. And then finally, the last, oh, I'm sorry, I, oh, no, I, I, it's saying. easy to get carried away right in yeah. describing this music. Right. It's, just, it's just so magnificent. But the final order of the, the sequence... Um, the rebels escape again is um, a little bit more string ostinato uh, and, and textural based essentially on an, uh, a, a contest between the Imperial March and Han Solo and the princess's theme. And that they, the, the good guys eventually win um, that, that theme triumphs over Vader's theme and they're off. They're off. Hoth. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the 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 final big set piece, which I guess you could call it Landa's Palace, the mm. escape. Um, to me, that's the most operatic. It just it just seems, yeah, yeah. I mean, and actually, movie wise, it seems like opera scenes. You know, especially yeah. the classic "I Love You, I Know." Yep. <laughs> there's 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 footage. I'm sure you've seen it of Williams uh, during the spotting session for this particular sequence uh sort of uh chuckling at, at the the sheer melodrama of the sequence and then he sort of gestures as though he's playing a violin you know the big weepy theme at that point and he gives you the big weepy theme for the the, yeah. the moment that that han solo is encased in carbonite But that's not where it ends, is it? So I mean, this it's... sequence begins, I, I believe, on the the reveal that of the of the betrayal, right? I believe. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, we're talking the, the the big complex of cues here. Uh, once once everything goes downhill in Bespin, right? And then that leads to you know the the big moment of the carbon carbon freeze, which mm-hmm. uh, which so many great moments. I love the how the tempanies are featured you know in in that scene
of those, you know, moments of climax and thematic culmination for the bad guy theme is probably the the most striking instance of Vader's theme um, in the whole score. And you see that wonderful visual of his helmet, you know, uh, as Solo is not not killed, he survives, but it's, you know, the, the sort of the, the worst moment for the that particular group of heroes in the whole movie. Yeah. And and again, that Han Solo theme, you know, right before then, it or the Han Solo and the princess, it flourishes as uh, he's looking up as he's, you know, being descended into the the molten. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it, 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 interestingly there. I mean, it doesn't actually reach completion, um, which I think is really significant. So it gets this, you know, like you said, massive operatic statement, but it doesn't hit a, a true cadence. It kind of gets stuck on the cadential figure. Um and then you get that timpani stuff it's it's uh it's thwarted it's not allowed to culminate um and and, and wonderfully even that cadence is motivic in a certain way that kind of flat to diminished third material in the the, the melody is actually a, a, a persistent element of a lot of the music in the Bespin sequences, whether or not it actually refers to the, the Hanzo and uh, Princess Leia theme, sort of detachable, yet another motivic um, element of continuity in this score. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember how far that goes. I know it goes through like the, you know, the big ju- juxtaposition of the Hanzo and the Princess theme mm-hmm. um, at, and with the dissonance as their Mm-hmm. the ship and i can't remember if all of the duel between darth vader and and luke skywalker is included or if it's just portions of it but but yeah it's about a it's about a 17 minute sequence or something like that it's a it's a huge yeah, yeah. and uh um and talking about one-off cues right either at the end of that or the very next one the it's a three-part trumpet sort of riff you know that happens in the ships right before hyperspace is that it's it's both musically very uh appealing but also works wonderfully with the visuals too the sort of sweeping scooping uh you know, fast-paced uh, uh sight of it's the Millennium Falcon moving through space. It's also one of the moments that I think um, was the, the the most ill-judged in the um, the Star Wars special editions from 1997, right? Where the, they were, they added new scenes and, mm-hmm. you know, and in general, most of the changes weren't really that substantial, at least not, not in Empire Strikes Back. But they spliced in a newly sh- shot um, sequence of Darth Vader getting on his shuttle and leaving Bespin and going up to the Star Destroyer to, I guess, explain how he was able to get from point A to point B, because in the original, he just sort of appears on the, the deck of the Star Destroyer. I don't think anyone really needed an answer to that. But the effect of adding these new scenes is totally to disrupt the perfect flow of that losing a hand and into hyperspace sequence, which is Williams constructed as this long, continuous crescendo of of tension and desperation, um, um, musically speaking. But now in all versions subsequent to 1997, you get this, I think, pretty atrocious insertion that really just ins- dissolves the musical tension by replicating some of the Imperial March from another cue and dialing down the 
the sort of musical intensity. Right. But yeah, that's that's I guess a, a musicologist problem, and, and most people would not, unless they were familiar with how it was supposed to go originally, may not even notice that there was that big of a difference. You know, I mean, George Lucas has has his fine points, but we've never credited him for having a lot of musical judgment. <laughs> well, he had musical judgment in that he hired Williams. Um, yes. and, and, and uh, in some ways, he has better musical judgment than some of the other composers that Williams has written or directors that Williams has uh, scored for. But you're right. I mean, <laughs> right. Particularly now, in the, the prequels. I, I mean, it's just, it's just an absolute mess. <laughs> Fair use act only allow me to play so much, so I can't play the entirety of these cues, much less the the end credit suite, which I think is, you know, maybe my it's it, it might be my favorite of the end credits yeah. in the series. Yeah. It's just one wonderful. The, all, all three of the big themes of the movie getting these extended treatments and and, and different than you'd heard in, in the main score, too. It's not like we're just sort of rehashing stuff that that had already been played. So the Yoda's theme that, that kicks things off is much more sort of upbeat and um, took me a, a sort of embarrassingly long time to realize that at least in at the beginning is um, uh, contrapuntally combined with the rebel fanfares. Yeah. Right just there on top of it. It's absolutely fantastic. Same thing happened with Leia's theme actually in the mm. A New Hope credits. And then it goes on to the Imperial March and the transitions too. I mean, that's the thing that actually really makes this work is that it's not just theme one, theme two, theme three, but very, you know, efficiently and smoothly, but cleverly connected from Yoda seems to Imperial March and from the Imperial March to Han Solo and the princess. Just, you know. He also, he, it sounds like at some point he's about to end the, the entire in credits music the same way he did in a new hope but mm -hmm. he adds he adds something to it and i think yeah. it improves it a lot Yeah, yeah, it's it's great, and it's the only time that this really happened. Um, well, no, that's not true. Uh, I think he kept it for Return of the Jedi, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Return of the Jedi reverts back to the original, the A New Hope version, with a more clear um, uh, uh, channeling of the throne room sequence at the very end. Um, but let's see. So the the, the way the credits end, um, it's all uh, kind of uh, is a difficult. Yeah. So that that comes back. Uh, the 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 progression, the baseline is there in a New Hope, but the, the theme actually gets transplanted into there in Return of the Jedi. But that's not not present in Empire Strikes Back, which has oh, yeah. a kind of unique conclusion. Um, the, the the only one that is well, again, it's complicated. So Phantom Menace ends with Anakin's theme. I want to say, um, as does the Attack of the Clones, but. Combined more with Vader's theme and, and Across the Stars. Revenge of the Sith is just pay, uh, note for note copying of Return of the Jedi's conclusion. Um, and the sequels all have their own sort of treatments of Rey's theme um, in some way or another. Well, Rise of Skywalker again repeats uh, A New Hope, but 
it's uh, uh, the Empire is probably the best of all of them, just as as a musical entity, right? So, you know, very well constructed, and it's not complicated either. I mean, you get theme one, theme two, theme three, plus little efficient transitions, but they're just such marvelous presentations of those themes. And if you listen to it in conjunction with the 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 cue that comes right before it, the Rebel Fleet, you also get the uh, the Force theme in a really beautiful statement and. Um, another bookend or midway bookend, if that makes sense, of the um, the Han Solo and Leia theme, plus the main theme, of course. Well, it, it takes quite an achievement to talk about one film score for more than an hour and feel like we only scratched the surface. It's yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> there are entire podcasts and video series dedicated to examining the score on a sort of minute-by-minute minute basis, Um it's 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 truly bottomless. Um, there's always new things to say about it, and I need to take care not to be too hyperbolic in the way I, I describe it because because you know there are other really fine film scores and nothing is perfect, but this is about as perfect a yeah perfect as John Williams score, perfect a Star Wars score as you could ask for. And you know it it might be kind of a chicken or the egg type of comparison here, but. You know, I think something has to be said that it's pretty widely acknowledged that The Empire Strikes Back is one of the finest films. Oh yeah, that helps, right? And, it does. It's, it's it handled in a way that helps it to stand stand out, yeah. and and I think that it, you could say, well, part of that is because of Williams, but I think it also part of, part of the reason the score is so good is because of the film. Yeah, know? no, you're 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 quite right. Um, it's. The storytelling is is sort of firing on all cylinders, and there are cases where a really fine film um, can make uh, make it seem as though the score is better than it actually is. I don't think that's the case here. I mean, I think the score and the film together are at the same high level of achievement, yeah. and we don't get this feeling like we do in certain other Star Wars movies where Williams has to compensate in some way for shortcomings in the the screenplay or the acting or the storytelling in general. And sometimes that produces really marvelous music. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think, um, you know, even for the the worst, you know, by consensus, worst of the Star Wars movies like Attack of the Clones, for example, um, or Rise of Skywalker, that the, the, the music is magnificent for most of the span and might be because the movie needed that extra helping hand, you know, to make sense or to, uh, right. or, or, or Williams, <laughs> Said, I, I, and I don't care. I know the, the movie is nonsense. So I'm just going to write great music and who cares whether, uh, you know, it's it's um, purely in service of a, of the narrative or not. And, and really, you know, this was also the peak of the era. This is the last thing that, that I'll I'll say about, you know, Empire Strikes Back. To me, the golden era for John Williams starts with Jaws. And I think it it may be in. I mean, you could say either Return of the Jedi or maybe Temple of Doom. Yeah, on, yeah, you know, but I really kind of to to me is Empire Strikes Back because I think that was mm -hmm. the last time other that he did a non Star Wars film with the London Symphony, as far as I know. But until the the prequels, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I I think I would agree with that periodization as well. The, 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 it's not as though the the scores that come after Temple of Doom are not masterpieces in, in a lot right. of cases but but the 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 lso era there was a certain kind of sustained virtuosity of his 
orchestral writing that you see in the, the three Star Wars films and E.T. and Close Encounters and Superman and, and Indy 2. I'll, I'll shout out another podcast, Pasker. Uh, actually, if you're really interested in the life of John Williams, you check out The Baton with Jeff uh, the Jeff Cummings. Yeah. Uh, he he re- biographically gets into it. He says up front, he's not a musician, so he doesn't get into the nuts and bolts. But mm-hmm. he pointed out pretty astutely that somewhere around Jurassic Park, the way Williams approached action music changed, yeah. and 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 I think he's right. Yeah, know? yeah, that, that that that's quite true. And and um, I mean, for for every general rule, there are exceptions. So yeah, we get theme driven uh, action cues all the way up until. 2019 uh, with Rise of Skywalker, but in general, you know, after Jurassic Park, it becomes a little bit more ostinato driven, a little bit less extended theme driven. Or the also, I should also theme. say that there are plenty of instances before that where we have the sort of quote unquote modern Williams writing um, in an old fashioned Williams score, like in Raiders or Temple of Doom, where you have plenty of ostinatos and non thematic uh, or, or sort of thematically clipped action set pieces. I feel like but, the War of the Worlds might be maybe the a quintessential example. Yeah, yeah. One of the world's um, not theme. I, I I wrote a whole academic chapter on Williams' uh, um, action music in the New Millennium, and I I actually start mostly with Jurassic Park two as the the turning point in his style. Jurassic Park one for sure. I mean, there, there's something particularly towards the end that that is um, much more. Uh, uh, it's not not thematically hand holding in a way, um, but with Jurassic Park two, we get in kind of this sort of minimalistic or percussion and ostinato driven action scoring, plus the present the ubiquitous uh, presence of one of his little motivic um, comfort blankets, the, the, the motif, the thing that he always just uses if you can't think of anything else, which shows up in 1997, and then every action score of Williams afterwards. Um, yeah, you know, this probably sound, sounds kind of funny, or, or I don't know, like a little anal, but when, when it comes to sequels of series, if John Williams scored them, I've seen them, if he didn't, I haven't. So I've seen the first two Jurassic Park, uh-huh. the first two Jaws, and I have not seen the sequels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would say for Jurassic Park, it's I mean, it's worth at least sampling some of the music for the the subsequent movies. The Don Davis score for Jurassic Park three is is I mean, it's Don Davis, so he certainly knows his way around the orchestra, and it's got a lot of um, really impressive. And very Williams-esque. I mean, he he wrote a very Williams-esque score for that. For the Jurassic World sequels, I think those are, um, to be quite honest, a little bit more disposable. I, and no slight towards Michael Giacchino, but when he tries to emulate Williams, I think he is... It it sounds... Uh, it pales in comparison, right? Yeah. Um, Giacchino actually... just, just doesn't know his way around the orchestra in the same way. I um, need doesn't to have the harmonic language, but when when Giacchino does Giacchino, I think oh, it's you know it's magnificent. So there are moments in those Jurassic World scores that are phenomenal, but they don't sound anything like John Williams. They sound like Michael Giacchino, which is what what we want actually out of film composers for them to be able to express their own unique voices. Yeah, I have to, um, I I I have to give Rogue One another chance 
you know, uh, so many yeah. people raving about it when it came out. I mean, the movie, but I was, yeah, like, yeah. I think I even posted on Facebook. I can't stop paying attention to the, to the fact that Michael Giacchino is trying to sound like John Williams without imitating the material. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and sometimes he does imitate the material. That's, that's, that's a great case in point too. I mean, you think the Rogue One score was also written under incredibly, uh, uh, un, un, <laughs> forgiving circumstances uh, that the time frame for that film score is, is microscopic so that that he was able to pull off anything um him and his uh, orchestrators i imagine is sort of a marvel but yeah the the moments in that score where you hear, you hear that sort of um naive and uh sentimental Giacchino style i think are pretty effective but the moments where he's trying to do a pseudo imperial march it's, it's yeah. not it's not it's not the way to to go so when i heard something like solo which is the next live action movie without a williams score well it did have a substantial input from williams but it's john powell writing music that uh is less in the shadow of williams which is funny because there are more overt quotations than a score but it's i think a hundred percent much more effective composition yeah, because I, powell is not yeah I haven't seen the movie, but I do like the score. I have yeah. that's one of the ones I've heard yeah. away from. So. And and Powell, I mean, also uh, he he has a bit more of a, um, I think, comfort writing big orchestral, uh, you know, in, in, instrumentally gratifying. You know, the, the the parts for the the performers are are complex but doable and continually interesting. Um, I, I think it's a very impressive score. It's actually one of my favorite recent Star Wars scores. The the solo score. I think he not. Powell plus a, with a little help from Williams really knocked it out of the park on that one. Uh, I just want to say, you know, thank you for coming back on and let me just remind listeners. So if you want to, you know, please go back and listen to episode eight to just, we talked a little bit more about what you do um, and, and your credentials, but I do want to remind everybody about your wonderful ever evolving uh, star Wars uh, thematic catalog on your website, which is yeah. franklayman.com. And I get um, I put a direct link to that in the show notes, but but definitely, you know, I would also encourage people to just browse your website if they're interested in film music, because you've got a lot of articles that you've cited. Yeah. Then the next big update uh, will have to be for Indiana Jones five when it comes out in a few months. Um, very exciting. You know, hard to imagine that we're getting a fifth score, but. From all accounts, it sounds I think James Mangold described it just today as uh, um, uh, being uh, a hell of a score, a super exciting <laughs> addition to the Indiana Jones thematic catalog. Um, if, you're, if you're a fan of John Williams or just film music in general, cherish from this point forward every film score you get because it very well could be the last one. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, it's not he who does, I hope he lives to be 120, but he is 91. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there aren't a whole lot of composers that have been active at that age, you know. Well, I think he'll he'll never stop as long as he can. Um, Elliot Carter was to, very prolific. You know? Yeah, <laughs> he's the, the Elliot Carter of, of film music. Maybe a little bit more uh, approachable than late Elliot Carter's music. But uh, he shows absolutely no signs of slowing down. If anything, he's kind of accelerating, at least with co concert performances. Um I think the actual film scoring is becoming increasingly labor laborious for him, but 
Right. He walked back um, a, a previous reports that he that Indiana Jones five would be his final film score. Um, he said, no, that, that that's not necessarily true. If Spielberg or someone else comes to me with the right project, how am I going to resist? I don't think he can. I don't think that he can stop himself. So we are very lucky. Um, and it's almost kind of unbelievable uh, in a way that this is yeah. 91 years he's been active since the 1950s at scoring pictures. That's you know the better part of uh, you know century now. Right. Uh, now, uh, one last question that was asked to me, uh, so I thought I'd relay it on. In regards to your catalog, does either does John Williams know about it, to your knowledge? And and if so, th- does he have any thoughts? <laughs> Well, uh, I know that he he must have a copy in his office somewhere because Alex Ross, the uh, the New Yorker um, uh, critic and, and author, did a, a feature on Williams a few years ago, and he brought my catalog with him to show Williams, and Williams looked at it, and I guess the word that Ross used was nonplussed, and that he that Williams considered it to be exhausting, um, which I find to be a a compliment of the highest order, and <laughs> and surreal to think that that my obsessive stenographic work and <laughs> scribbling down his, his themes, no matter how minor, right? Jar Jar's theme gets as much detail on this as and an, an analytical care as the force theme. And uh, it's just sort of uh, un- unbelievable to me that, that this could be in his possession. I don't think that he refers to it. I, I would be sort of embarrassed and, that would be funny. Frankly, frightened to think that he was actually leaping through this thing in any kind of sustained way. But, <laughs> but yeah, you know, he knows of its existence, um, which is like, uh, yeah, could never have imagined starting this this project, which is just you know, uh, began in 2015 as a, a for personal use only, and it was only a single page, just writing down the names of the themes and links, as I I think many fans and followers of these film scores have done formally or informally, just sort of keeping a record, but it's, well, it's, a, it's a very exhausting resource. You document the themes, you talk a lot about the harmonies and you get into the music theory of it, which, you know, for me, that's, that's very interesting. And, um, and I mean, you even get into the one-offs and so forth. Oh, yeah. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I look at it and I try to think, I wonder if you remember this. Yes, you have. <laughs> so, <laughs> There's stuff that I, I I have not yet discovered. People tell me, think, oh, you, you know, you miss this or you, you mischaracterize this. It's like, you know what? This is kind of a collaborative enterprise at this point. Um, yeah. Because it is so much music and it's so complicated and interrelated. Uh, uh, there's nothing quite like it. And I, I approach this as as I think um, anyone would of, uh, you know, a piece of high art, you know, the, the, with the same systematicity and the same attention to detail and seriousness uh, that I think, you know, like Wagner's ring cycle or the Beethoven symphonies, you know, any of these monuments of, uh, you know, Western classical music to deserve. I approach this as though it were one of those. And uh, it's it's been just an incredibly rewarding experience to continuing experience. These scores never stop evolving and they're never, there's always new material being one of the elite, in the pile one of the elitist comments that i that i will always kind of like catch myself being kind of volatile towards mm-hmm. they compared jaws to the beginning of Dvorak's finale of ninth symphony yeah. and say if you're gonna if you're gonna go there you don't why don't you just compare it to the whale chase music from pinocchio 
Right. It has the same oscillating E, F minor yeah. <laughs> As though, you know, Dvorak were the only composer uh, identifiable for having written something involving a semitone. It's, it's, yeah. And I, I say that maybe Williams did model it after the Dvorak. Who cares? I mean, it's, uh, uh, it doesn't make much of a difference, honestly. It's such a bare little musical detail. I've but... never listened to the Ninth Symphony of Dvorak and thought about a shark. I'm just saying. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. But, but uh, it's a, uh, um, People who who can't help but hear that this kind of a motivate motivated listening or agenda driven listening. Um, yeah, if you do it with like sympathy and understanding, um, I'm perfectly in favor of making these connections with the classical repertoire. I think it's really important. Um, Williams doesn't deny it. I mean, he's quite upfront about it, including with Star Wars. Uh, this is referential music, and he's the references are done knowingly and affectionately and. And uh, um, deliberately, and w with no attempt to conceal their their connections, but it's, it, it, it can't be a gotcha, right? It, that's uh, that that's that, that that tells me more about um, the, the state, the changing state of reception for film music than it does anything about a particular score. Yes, Frank, thank you once again for taking time to to share your expertise with this legendary score that we yeah. talked. about. Well, thank you again for for letting me uh, wax on about this thing. I mean, we, we could have gone on for you know a whole week uninterrupted talking about every aspect of this score, but I hope that I hope that we hit on some of the big elements of of Empire that make it really the uh, a, a unique piece of music. I mean, not even I wouldn't even call it just a, an, an achievement in film composition, but just a, a musical no matter what the genre just a, a remarkable piece and if you made it this far thank you for listening that was the longest episode of the musician toolkit is actually the longest uh episode i've ever done as a podcaster with between two podcasts and as uh episode 19 was a short solo episode so will episode 21 that'll be coming out on monday so a couple of short episodes with this longer one sandwiched in between and i'm generally finding that that's Typically how this podcast will probably go is alternating a short to medium solo episode with a little bit longer, more in-depth um, interview with guests. So I, I know it's advised a lot of times that podcasts should decide on a specific length so that audiences know what to expect. It's just not working out. <laughs> there will be some short episodes, medium episodes, and long episodes. It all depends on what we have to talk about. I just want to remind you that if you have a private studio of any kind, it doesn't even have to be music, it could be yoga, it could be martial arts, it could be as a personal trainer or anything else where you are interacting with one client or a, or a few clients at a time. If it involves billing, if it involves scheduling, you need to check out Fonz to see how it might save you time and effort. And it's been saving me time and effort for about a year now. And I highly recommend it. They are improving the app all the time. They've recently signed on with Make Music, the same company that represents Finale Software. So they're going to get even better and better. It's a great online community. They will help you with marketing and SEO. So many things. And you can get a two-week free trial by going through the link in my show notes. If you're watching on YouTube, if you'd please hit the thumbs up and subscribe. And if you found this episode through your podcast app, if you'd also please subscribe and 
If you're so inclined, leave a five-star rating and review. And if you don't feel like doing any of that, I just ask you that you please, if you enjoy this episode, share it with at least one other person that will help us to be discovered by new listeners. Again, thanks for staying till the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can leave me feedback if you have any comments about it at speakpipe.com slash musician toolkit, or you can leave a message at any of, or you can leave a message through my website, davidlanemusic.com slash contact. Again, thanks for listening and I will see you next time.